the story of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah. Some of you are going, oh yeah, Hezekiah. What what do we know about Hezekiah? We're going to find out today. But before we do, I I want us just to have a little bit, like, let's just set the bar appropriately here. Because when we think about good kings and bad kings, I want us to just put ourselves a little bit into their shoes. And here's the reality, that at our worst, we're no better than the bad kings. And at our best, we're also no better than the good kings. That's because they were people. And as people, they had flaws, good and bad. Even the good kings had flaws. The bad kings, we know, had a lot of flaws. But what defined a good king was not necessarily how good they were or how well they accomplished all of their achievements. It was directly connected to how they were in tune with the will of God and how they held fast to God. And in the opening, when we look at the kings, you're going to find all their stories in the books of the kings. You know, here's your sign. And the books of the chronicles. And so we're going to be bouncing a little bit back and forth between um, Second Kings and Second Chronicles. But I think that Second Kings gives a great like opening statement for the story of King Hezekiah. And here's what it is. It says, for Hezekiah, it says, for he, Hezekiah, held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. This is the like the linchpin to Hezekiah's reign is that he held fast to the Lord. When he didn't hold fast to the Lord, when he lost focus, that's when things started to spiral just like it spiraled for every other king. But when he held fast to the Lord, things went okay. Okay. Not like always great. But they went okay. He, he was doing well. And here's what I want us to understand is that throughout this whole series, we've talked a lot about drama, specific kinds of drama at times. And the thing that I want us to understand is that drama can strike at any time. Good times, bad times. Life is a roller coaster. We went to the fair a couple weeks ago, and my youngest loves the roller coasters, loves rides. Not that there's like giant roller coasters at the fair, but... There's some rides that kind of go do the up and down thing. And she's like screaming, going, yeah, this is awesome. My son is green. And I also sometimes can be a little green, especially after I eat a few doughboys, you know. But the reality is, is that drama can strike at any time. And the, the key, just like we just read, is that who are we going to choose to keep our focus on when the drama strikes? Because who we choose to focus on or what we choose to focus on will either carry us to life or it will sink us to destruction. That is the story of king after king after king, and the same was true for Hezekiah. And Hezekiah's life can be split into three parts, I think, three missions. And most kings tried to establish, like, put their stamp, their identity on their reign, on their dynasty. And this is how Hezekiah uh, set up his, his reign. First, it was about revival. These were good times, and we're going to talk more about these in a second, but it was all about revival within the temple. The second was about revolt or rebellion. These were not necessarily bad times, but they were very, very difficult times. And then the third is the reward, the reward, his end times, his retirement years, you know, his sunset years, so to speak. And we're going to get to see all of it. And Hezekiah had a unique opportunity where he could actually know 
what and when his end times were going to be. So, let's jump into the story and see this first part, the first part of revival. The revival was all about rebuilding and reestablishing the temple. Solomon had built this temple in Jerusalem when, during his reign, and it was glorious. It was amazing. It, was, it signified God's presence among his people. And Hezekiah, when he took over, said, this is how I'm going to start my reign, is by reestablishing temple worship. Not worship of the temple, but worship within the temple to God. And look at what happens here. It says the whole assembly, this is in Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 25. It says the whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and of the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced because Hezekiah has reestablished worship within this temple and things are going on. People are feeling it. Have you ever heard the saying, if you build it, they will come? Well, that's basically what Hezekiah does. He says, I'm going to build a place to worship and encounter God. And he builds and rebuilds and resets the place the way that it should be. And people come from all over. Even people from Israel were coming because they wanted a piece of this God. They wanted to experience what it would be like to worship God. And people were coming from all over and they were rejoicing. They're going, this is amazing. They were coming from all over so much that there was like a wait to bring the offering before God. I mean, it was, there was a backlog of offerings to God happening here. This was exciting times. It was so exciting that there was so, and there was so much joy in Jerusalem because it wasn't since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, that there had been anything like this in Jerusalem. That's what it says in verse 26. There are some parallels in Solomon's reign and Hezekiah's reign, and one of them is this. How they experienced God among the people. But it wasn't just among the people. It wasn't just this. They were, having, they were reestablishing feasts. All of the Passover was starting to be observed, and it hadn't been observed in a long, long time. And the priests and the Levites who are, have been given their job now have, uh, have also have, have this responsibility. It says, The priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. I want you to understand, this is the height of prosperity. Okay, hold on to that thought for a second. Okay, the priests and the Levites arose, blessed the people, and their voice was heard. Prosperity. Their voice was heard. Have I mentioned riches? Nope. Have I mentioned wisdom? Nope. Have I mentioned health? Nope. Prosperity is defined this way, that their voices were heard by God. There is a direct connection between God and the people that did not exist before. In 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verse 21, it says this about Hezekiah. It says, And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did all with all of his heart, and he prospered. Now, the reason why I said this is the height of prosperity 
is because it would be very easy for you to walk away from this morning and go, if I obey God, if I do his commands, I will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That is the prosperity gospel. That is not necessarily true. You may follow God to a T and have a very difficult life. However, if you follow him, he is faithful to hear your prayers and to walk with you through the most difficult times. It's important to remember that during the good times. And that's how Hezekiah starts his reign in prosperity, being connected to God. Now, did he have wealth? Absolutely. But he used that wealth to adorn the temple, to bring people before a holy God. That is pretty incredible. During this time, during this revival time, during these good times, Hezekiah's focus on God led to a life that was never experienced before, not since the days of Solomon. What about the second phase of his life? The, the second phase of his life was about revolt, rebellion, and bad times. And while all of this is happening within the temple, the backdrop is, and Stephen talked about this a little bit last week, was that there, were, there was this superpower known as Assyria that was just wreaking havoc on every surrounding area. And Judah at that time was kind of a patron state. As long as they didn't get in the way, they were okay. You know, as long as they paid their dues, they were okay. But just like every king wants to, they want to put their stamp on it. The first stamp for Hezekiah was, hey, let's reestablish an identity as God's people. And as God's people, that also means that we need to be an independent nation under God. But this led to difficult and bad times. The very next verse in Second uh, Kings chapter 18, it says, The Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. This is right after the verse where he says he held fast to God. The second part of this verse says that he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. The second phase of Hezekiah's reign is that he wanted to establish a kingdom for himself and for God. And he knew that this was the time. This is the time that they no longer were going to pay their patronage towards Assyria they were going to go out and uh, lash out on their own. And this came at a very convenient time because it came during a transition of power between Sargon II and Sennacherib. Whenever there's a transition of power, maybe there's a chink in the armor, right? And that's what Hezekiah is thinking. It also came at a time where an alliance was forming and there's an opportunity and his advisors, his father's advisors were telling him this is a chance for us to link up with other neighboring nations. Nations like Egypt. Why would Hezekiah want to link up with Egypt? With the history that Egypt had with God's people. A nation that held God's people under captivity for generations and generations. But that's what was being considered during the time of Hezekiah. Let's attack while they're weak, and let's link up with this alliance, Egypt. In history, it's known as the Ashdod Rebellion, where Egypt was saying, hey, let's, let's link up with all of our neighboring nations and form a resistance to the Assyrian Empire. Now, the reason why Egypt needed this alliance was because they were not the superpower that they once were. 
They needed help. They needed strength in numbers. And this is what Hezekiah was considering. Now, we know that they were considering this because of some of the context in 2 Kings. And also, these guys called the prophets tended to speak up when kings started to go the wrong direction. And we're going to see that. Now, we also know this because Sennacherib is hearing rumors and hearing whispers that other nations are starting to rise up. They're starting to do what uh, Judah has done in no longer paying homage to Assyria. And so what did they do? They came and they started wiping out those nations. And in 2 Kings uh, 18, verses 8 through 10, that's basically what you see is nation after nation fall. And in verse 11, you get to the closest of neighbors to Judah. It says, the king of Syria... King of Assyria carried the Israelites, the Israelites away and put them in Hala and on the harbor. I really struggled with the Rhode Island accent right there. I don't know if you could tell. The river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Okay? So even their closest neighbors are taken out and scattered because that's what Assyria did. And Judah knew we're next. They knew that because they literally come to the doorsteps. They attack Judah. And what does Hezekiah do? This is where the rubber meets the road for Hezekiah, right? Like during difficult times, what is it going to look like? Well, we see where Hezekiah's focus is during this rebellion, during this revolt. And it went to his foes rather than the friend that he has in God. It went towards Egypt instead of the friend that he had. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. Look at it. It says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. You can say, well, that could be about anything. How do you know it's about this situation? Next verse. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt? This is the same prophet who says, who calls his, God's people to rest under the shadow of his wing. And now he's saying, but instead you are seeking shelter under the shadow of Egypt. In verse 3 it says, Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. And that's exactly what happens. Sennacherib comes in and he goes, he says, You are going to take refuge from Egypt? I'm going to snap them like a reed. They come to the door and... Hezekiah pleads in 2 Kings 18, verse 14. Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lashik, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. During this time, Hezekiah's focus doesn't just turn toward, towards his foes, but also his prosperity but not the prosperity the way that we defined it. He turns to the riches that he has and that he had dedicated to God and instead turns away from God's provision. And what's interesting is that his enemy actually provides refocus. If you look, when Hezekiah pleads for, uh, for Sennacherib to show mercy and asks for him to, uh, to, to, to lay on him any kind of uh, penalty... What Sennacherib does is he says, I want 
300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. This is in verse 14. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. Listen to where he got it from. The house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house. But look where he takes it from. Second uh, Kings 18.16 At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. He takes the riches that he had dedicated to God that were at the very entrance so that all could see, hey, this is the glory of God showing up in our place. Come and worship him. And he takes all of that, strips it, and says, let me give it to an enemy who worships a foreign god. And the enemy continues. He doesn't let up. He thought he could get away with, and get by by paying them off. And have you ever heard, a friend of mine said this, he says, Steve, have you ever heard if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true? That's pretty much what's happening here with Hezekiah. We'll let you off. Just pay us this. He does, and they keep coming. They come to the city gates, and um, Sennacherib, the ruler of Assyria, sends his right-hand man. This right-hand man is called the Rabshakeh. And, and many uh, cultures believe this is kind of like the cupbearer to the king. He is the right-hand man. And this is what the Rabshakeh says as he's standing outside the doors. You know, you get a picture of like, you know, the, the men coming up to the gates on their horses and, and they are kind of trying to work out a deal, kind of broker a treaty before there has to be any kind of bloodshed, right? That's kind of what's happening here. Only, instead of speaking just to the people that Hezekiah sends out as his delegation, they speak loud for everyone to hear, and they speak in a way that everyone within the walls of the city can hear and understand. So they use a tongue that everyone can hear and understand. And this is what the Rabshakeh says in 2 Kings 18.19. The Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? I, when I read this, I dropped my Bible. I was just like, what? This is the Rabshakeh calling out the king of Judah saying, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Your plans, your prosperity, all of the things that you are putting your full weight on and trust in. What are you doing? The enemy is calling him out. On what do you place this trust of yours? And I started thinking, on what do I place this trust of mine in? When the rubber hits the road, when hard times come, this is a great question to ask yourself. On what do you place this trust of yours in? Are you going to trust in the quick fix? Are you going to trust in clever plans, promotions? On what do you place this trust of yours in? And then they keep going. And they call out for everybody to hear and they give these warnings for everyone to hear. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. 
Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Do not hold on to hope in the Lord's ability to save you. You hear, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not. So many times from the Rabshakeh, telling the people, in essence, rebel against your king. The king of Assyria is better. But then they go too far. They go too far. In chapter 18, verse 32, it says, And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of King Assyria? Of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Big mistake. What did they do? They lumped the one true God in with all the other gods. Big mistake. Do you remember we said drama can strike at any time? But who we choose to focus on will either carry us to life or sink us to destruction. And in this moment, Hezekiah needs to decide in whom am I going to place my trust? The king of Hezekiah, or the king of Assyria or on the one true God? We know where the king of Assyria is placing his trust. On his God, on himself. But Hezekiah in this moment chooses to turn to God. In 2 Kings 19, verses 1 and 2, you see Hezekiah go before Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in sackcloth, basically like picture burlap, burlap bag. This is a sign of repentance, of mourning. And he goes and he says, I have done wrong. And all of my people, we have done wrong. And God delivers in a way that the Egyptian alliance would have failed, where his bribe would have failed. And Sennacherib, all the while, continues to defile the Lord with his words, with his actions. And Isaiah says, enough is enough. And it says, that night, in 2 Kings 19, verse 35, the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Some historians believe this may have been something like equivalent to the bubonic plague sweeping across the camp. But we know that this was a divine intervention. That God stepped in when his name was besmirched. He came and he showed up. He said, hey, if you focus on me, I will carry you to life in a way that this world has never seen before. And if you don't rely on me, well, let's see what happens. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his god, Adremelech, and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esrahad and his son reigned in his place. Who you choose to focus on matters. It will either carry you to life or sink you to destruction. Hezekiah's life had three parts. Revival, revolt, 
and reward retirement, the end of his time. So we're going to see about that. And, and during each of these times, his focus was on God. Sometimes it took him a little while. Sometimes he had to go through the downs, the valleys, to get to experience where he was. But Hezekiah survived a faith crisis, a physical crisis, a focus crisis. And each time, the right response was that he prayed and turned back to God. In Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 25 it says, Hezekiah did not, re- did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. That doesn't sound like someone who held fast to God, right? But it goes on. It says, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. This is a summary statement of the end of his life. That because of his faithfulness, God did not do harm to the people of Judah. Because he continued to turn back to God and hold fast to him, the people were saved. But where was Hezekiah's focus at the end of his life? If you turn to 2 Kings chapter 20, It says, in those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Let me just stop and say, the prophets, specifically Isaiah, they just spoke it like it was and didn't care. Like his friends had to be zero. Because, I mean, he comes up to the king and he goes, Hey, you're sick. Instead of saying, man, I hope you get better, he goes, you're sick. You're going to die. You're not going to recover. Like, what kind of Debbie Downer is he? I don't know. But he says, he says, you will die. You will not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in, the faith, in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He prays in the appeals to his faithfulness of the past. And we see that what happens next is so gracious of God. God hears his prayer. And before Isaiah can even get to the door to leave, he says, stop, turn back around, and go tell King Hezekiah that not only have I heard his prayers, but I'm going to give him 15 more years. 15 years are added to his life. And Hezekiah, who started out so good, right? Man, he held fast to God. He brought about revival. He orchestrated rebellion for God. He, even though he didn't do it great, uh, he hits these retirement years, starting as maybe like a 10 on the good king scale. Like, he's probably a 2 at this point, if we're honest. But all the while, God has bestowed on him the benefit of the doubt based on the faithfulness of his past. And how does he use it? Do you remember how Hezekiah took advantage of the opportunity that that he had against the Assyrians during that transition of power? Well, the Babylonian king hears that Hezekiah had gotten sick. And so he sends a delegation to go check out all of who Hezekiah was and what his kingdom looked like and what he had. 
You remember how I said there were some parallels between Solomon and Hezekiah? The first was that Solomon built the temple. Hezekiah rebuilds the temple. During Solomon's life, you know, he, was, he had gained, amassed so much wealth. His wisdom was renowned over all the land that people came from all over to see and to hear from him. And now Hezekiah hears that this delegation from Babylon is coming to his doorstep and wants to see what he has. And so he just lets him right in. In 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 13 through 19, we see how even though his focus may have been on God, the wisdom wasn't quite there. He says, Hezekiah welcomed them and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, good job. No. (laughs) What did these men say? And from where did they come? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said gently to Hezekiah, not quite gently, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, who we heard about last week, Manasseh and Amnon, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Good news. Unfortunately, that's how Hezekiah heard it. Listen to why. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. Cold. Fifteen years. Fifteen years Hezekiah had in the end of his life to establish a new legacy to continue on the same type of legacy that he had appealed to before God. And instead he wastes it. Drama can strike at any time. The beginning of time, good times, bad times, and the end of time. And how we follow him to the finish line matters. There are some lessons that I think that we can take from Hezekiah. Let's look at these next steps. Maybe you're here today and you go, life is good. Life is good. I, I cannot complain. But I, I need to eliminate distractions that keep my focus off of God. If there's one thing that we learn, it's that Hezekiah had some distractions that were in his life. And what we need to do is to ruthlessly eliminate those distractions. Sometimes we need people in our life like Isaiah who can call out those distractions in our life. 
And some of you are going, life is not good. So can we just move on to the next step? Well, okay, we will. The next step is that life is difficult and you need prayer that you will have wisdom to keep your focus on God rather than rely on the quick fix that will make you feel better. Can I just say, please be careful. Because sometimes when we're going through the difficult times, we just want to get through those difficult times as fast as humanly possible. And maybe, just maybe, during those difficult times, God is calling you to seek Him and to trust on Him and to rely on Him that you'd never be able to gain that kind of wisdom and experience going through just good times. So instead of trying to go through a quick fix, will you just take time to pray that God will deliver you, but that you'd actually learn a lesson through the bad times? That you'd see his faithfulness during the bad times, during the difficult times? Because that is a gift. If you're able to walk through difficult times, that's a gift to be used at the end of time or during other parts times where you're on the mountaintop experiencing good times. And the last next step is this, that you take the gifts that God has given to you and share them with other people. Don't be like Hezekiah. Don't try and, and have him be the bar that you set your life to. Instead, align yourself with God and hold fast to him. See the gifts that he's given to you and share them with others. And there's opportunities to share. Rick shared that there's a group of people who have said, hey, we want to come and serve kids and give them the gift of the knowledge of scripture that he's given to us. And I can tell you some, some of the people on our team, they're, they're going, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure this out myself. People on Justin's team that are in student ministries, they're leading small groups. And we say, hey, if you're one step ahead, you're far enough ahead as long as you're looking to Christ. So would you take a minute on your, on your connection card and let us know if there's a place you want to serve. Maybe it's a place you want to serve in your community and give a gift that way. Maybe it's volunteering at, at the Soul Care event. Whatever it is, don't waste the life that God has given to you because He is a good, good Father. And that's what we're going to sing right now. We're going to remember that he is a good father and it's because that's just who he is. That's just who he is. And he's the one that is going to help us during the good times, the bad times, and the end of times. So let's stand together and sing good, good father.